Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. My guest today is Matthew Desmond, a sociologist at Princeton University whose research focuses on poverty in America. We just can't allow our values to stop where our property line begins. He's the author of four books, including Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, which won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award. Desmond's new book is called Poverty by America. I love the title. I'll have him say more about that. In it, he explores why the United States, the richest country on earth, has more poverty than any other advanced democracy. This elegantly written and fiercely argued book gives us new ways of thinking about a morally urgent problem. Welcome, Matthew. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Jim. It's an honor to be here with you. In the book, Desmond argues that we are all implicated in perpetuating poverty in this country. Title of the book is Poverty by America, Not Poverty in America. I want to ask, start by asking a question I ask all of my guests on the soul of the nation, which is, Matthew, how is your spirit these days? I'm hopeful, I think. I'm hopeful. You know, I've been on the road a lot talking about this book, and I am meeting so many Americans that are just hungry for this conversation. They are done with the old tropes and the old stories and the old myths about poverty. They want something new. You know, it's like that old Gromsky line where the old is dying and the new hasn't been born yet. And I'm just encouraged by these conversations, their challenges, and their willingness to move in a moral way against poverty. That's a great report. I'm glad these conversations are uh, hopeful for you, given how unhopeful our public debate is about poverty these days, really on both sides of the aisle. So we are recording this podcast on a day when House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden are meeting to discuss the debt ceiling limit. Republicans in the House have refused to pass legislation raising the debt ceiling without drastic cuts in federal spending. The proposal the House passed would enact more stringent work requirements for recipients of food stamps and Medicaid benefits. Same time, the Republican plan would cut funding for the IRS to go after wealthy tax cheats. That really strikes me. I've said for many years that when the government wants to tighten its belt, it always seems to tighten it around the necks of the poor. Why does this keep happening? Republicans targeting programs that help poor people. And what do you make of this current debate over the debt ceiling? I think it's shameful. I think it's sinful. You know, Republicans know that work requirements don't incentivize work. They know this because Arkansas in 2018 applied work requirements to Medicaid. 18,000 people lost their health insurance and it didn't increase employment. Many of those programs already have work requirements. And so this isn't a debate about work. You know, this is a debate about taking these programs away from families who desperately rely on them to eat, to avoid homelessness, to give their kids a little breath. And so I think that we should call it what it is, which is which is sinful. And, you know, I'm so glad you 
you brought up tax cheating. You know, a study a few years ago found that, you know, if the richest 1% of Americans just paid the taxes they owed, not paid more, right? Just stopped debating so successfully that we as a nation could raise an additional $175 billion a year, billion with a B. You know, that's almost enough to lift everybody above the official poverty line. And so you're right. You know, if we want to have a conversation about spending or about debt, we have to have a conversation about how the country lets the richest among us slide and really puts its heel on the neck of the poorest families. This is this is a wrong thing to do. Well, I'm glad you call this uh, both shameful and sinful because it is indeed both. And I wish more people in Washington, D.C. were willing to talk about how these policies are so sinful. You write in your book about the experience of government aid during the COVID pandemic, which when the U.S. economy lost millions of jobs, but poverty fell for all racial and ethnic groups, it fell for people who lived in cities and those who lived in rural areas. Swift government action didn't just prevent economic disaster, it helped to cut child poverty by more than half. (laughs) And then the government allowed many, if not all of those programs that lifted Americans out of poverty, like the child tax credit, to expire. So I was part of the coalition led by faith leaders that called on lawmakers to renew the expanded child tax credit in Build Back Better. But our effort failed because senators like Joe Manchin and others insisted that people were wasting their money on things like drugs. That's a lie. As we know from census data, people spent the money on things like doctor's bills and rent and food. You're right that we are quote, conditioned to assume the worst about one another when it comes to receiving help from the government. You call this capitalist propaganda. Why is this so effective? It's been our story since the earliest days of capitalism. You know, capitalists had a problem. You know, they needed to push people off the land where they were growing their own food, raising their own cows, and and make them work in factories. And they had an answer to that problem, which was hunger. But they also needed a big government. You know, they needed police forces, they needed laws, they needed tariffs. But a big government could also pass out bread, right? Big government can, can solve hunger too. And so the capitalists really in the earliest days were already talking about we cannot have government aid to the poor if we want people in our factories, in our mines. And that story has remained with us over decades and over over centuries. And, you know, when I hear it, it just rings so false with respect to the lived experience of the poor. You know, and you cite census data, and you're right. You know, if you look at how people spend their money with respect to food stamps or the earned income tax credit, they're really spending it on basic necessities because of course. But I also learned this living in poor neighborhoods. You know, one thing that shocked me when I was in Milwaukee, spending time with families getting evicted, is just how many of them faced incredible hardship, dead sober, you know, dead sober. And I, I wanted a drink now and again. And you know what, I, I, I do have a drink now and again, and no one is asking me how I spend my mortgage interest deduction, right? No one is asking me how I spend the money that I save because I benefit from this lopsided tax code that accrues to uh, Americans with some economic security. So these questions are really questions that we only pose to our poorest families. Again, this is unfair. So it's a fundamental moral question, as you just said, when if people paid what they owe in their taxes, the wealthiest among us, that by itself could help lift millions of people out of poverty. And we're making a choice here. This isn't about 
poor families and poor people and their habits were making a choice about who is important and who is not. Right. As you write in your book, we cannot ignore the effects of race. You and I both know that. And racism on American poverty. You write, quote, today the wealth gap between black and white families is as large as it was in the 1960s. Our legacy of systematically denying black people access to the nation's land and riches has been passed from generation to generation, you say. And you offer this alarming statistic. In 2019, the median white household had a net worth of around $180,000, compared with $24,000 for the median black household. What are some of the ways in which this country continues to systemically deny black people the opportunities it freely offers to most white Americans again and again and again? Yeah, it's impossible to write a book on poverty in America without also writing a book about racism in America. You know, they go in lockstep. And one of the core ways that we continue to deny Black Americans access to the bounty of this country is through segregation. And, you know, the country continues to embrace segregation along racial and class lines. Many of us build walls around our communities and we hoard resources behind those walls which concentrates affluence, but it also concentrates poverty. And if you read the historical accounts of segregation from the 60s or the 40s, and then you go to a zoning board meeting today, many of us are making the same arguments that white Americans made in a generation past and a generation two past. You know, we're making arguments about schools and and safety and housing values. And We just can't allow our values to stop where our property line begins. And those of us that are invested in a more open and inclusive community need to start showing up at those zoning board meetings too and raise from our seats and say, look, I refuse to deny other kids opportunities my kids get by living here. Let's go forward with this thing. And so here again, right, we have a historical story and we need new policy changes But for those that come about, we need real personal action, moral action, to finally turn away from segregation in America. Your whole book talks about not just changing how we think, but how we act. As you just said, I like that so much. A lot of folks think we're making progress, but according to federal statistics you cite in your new book, we have made very little progress on poverty since 1970, 12%. 0.6% of the U.S. population was poor in 1970. You cite in 2019, it was 10.5%. There is no real improvement here, just a long stasis. It's not because federal relief has declined, as you know. In fact, it has increased. But what accounts for our lack of progress on poverty that so many people think we're making? This is a real paradox, and it's a paradox we have to talk about because the puzzle is that government programs work. We know this. There's a mountain of evidence showing that things like food stamps or housing assistance, the earn income tax credit, these lift millions of families out of poverty every year. And yet poverty persists. And it's not just because the official poverty measure is broken. It is a flawed measure. But if you look at other measures, like the supplemental poverty measure, you see the same trend. You know, that, that measure, which does a better job 
counting government aid that the official poverty line ignores. That supplemental poverty measure in 1973, 50 years ago, is 15.1%. Uh, 40 years later, in 2013, it was 15.5%. And so what's going on here? And what's happening is that, you know, we haven't attacked the root causes of poverty. We have to address the unrelenting exploitation of the poor in the labor movement, in the market, in the housing market, in the financial market. So if you look at the war on poverty, right, in the Great Society, which were launched in 1964, these were deep investments in the poorest families in America. And 10 years after they were launched, they cut the poverty rate in half. But they were also launched at a time where one in three workers belonged to a union. Wages were climbing. The job market was delivering for a lot of Americans. You know, between 1960 and 1973, men's wages grew basically 40%, you know, in just 13 years. But as workers started losing power, wages started to stagnate. And today, if you're a man without a college degree, your inflation adjusted wages are less than what they were 50 years ago. So the job market isn't delivering, right? And because it's not delivering, it's diluting the power of our government programs. It's, ch it's changing them from something that cures poverty into something like dialysis, right? Something that alleviates their hardship and their sting, but doesn't make poverty go away. So the implications of this paradox and leaning into this paradox are really important because it means we don't just need deeper investments to fight poverty, we need different ones. We need long-term solutions that really start to address the fundamentals of American society that have started to break down and that are failing many of the poorest families in our communities. When people ask you what those key long-term solutions are, what do you say? So if we think about wages, right? One thing we need to do to address exploitation is improve worker empowerment. So unions have a great track record of doing just this, but it's really hard to organize today, right? You got to go one warehouse and another and another, or one Starbucks and another and another. So can we find ways of improving worker wages and conditions across entire sectors like they do in Europe? Can we organize all those warehouse workers in one sweep? I think that's one way to do it in the labor market. Or you could think of things like putting workers on corporate boards or the least we can do, for goodness sake, is to increase the federal minimum wage, which hasn't been increased in over 13 years and counting, and start putting in new legislation so that Workers don't have to wait another decade or so for Congress to get its act together before they get a pay raise. Or if you think about housing, you know, one way to address housing exploitation is just provide families more choice, right? The choice of most low-income families today is, is one choice. You got to rent from a private landlord and give that landlord and your utility company most of what you get. So what if we could make real on-roads to homeownership for low-income families? What if we built out our social housing infrastructure? What if we invested in more cooperative housing that tenants run and own and keep permanently affordable? I think there are a lot of ways to expand choice in the housing market as well. And there's clearly a wrong way, you know, the way we're doing it now. You're right that just 22 cents of every dollar allocated for poor people actually reaches them, what happens to this, uh, the other 78 cents? So this is through a program called Temporary Assistance to Needy Families, or TANF. It's cash welfare, right? And it's distributed by a block grant. And as you know, a block grant is just a fancy way of saying, okay, states, here's some money, spend it as you'd like. 
we're not going to really watch you. And states are given a lot of discretion about how to spend that money. And man, they they are very creative with that discretion. Some states use welfare dollars to fund Christian summer camps, uh, abstinence-only classes, marriage initiatives, anti-abortion counseling. These are things that don't have a lot to do with poverty. And so a lot of states also just literally don't spend the money. You know, Tennessee was sitting on over $700 million in unused welfare funds. The last time I checked, Hawaii is sitting on so much that they could give each poor kid in its state $10,000. And so one of the implications of this is just because there's a dollar in the federal budget does not mean there's a dollar that reaches a family that needs it the most. A former colleague of yours and the, the dean of McCourt School of Public Policy, where I now am based, Maria Canchon, once said to me, what poor people need is cash. What overcomes poverty is cash. And the simplicity of that is, is very powerful. Yeah, I mean, we saw this in COVID, right? We saw the power of the child tax credit. We saw this experiment, this national experiment, where a guaranteed income for moderate and low-income families just cut child poverty in half in six months, six months. And so I think that, you know, Maria is onto something here where we see the power of those initiatives. And I think that if we can come around those initiatives with programs that address, especially housing unaffordability and housing exploitation, we can make sure those dollars go further in the long run. Right. You're right that it's a, quote, useful exercise to evaluate the merits of different explanations for poverty. But you found that doing so always leads you to leads you back to the simple truth that poverty is an injury, a taking. Tens of millions of Americans do not end up poor by a mistake of history or personal conduct. You say poverty persists because some wish and want it to. Tell us more about what you mean by that. And your book is titled Poverty by America, Not Poverty in America. Explain the crucial difference. I ran across this line by Tommy Orange, the novelist, where he writes, these kids are jumping out of the windows of burning buildings, falling to their deaths. And we think that the problem is that they're jumping. And when I read that, I thought, that's, that's the American poverty debate right there. For over 100 years, we focus on the jumpers, you know, the poor themselves. And we should have been focusing on the fire, you know, who lit it, who's warming their hands by it. And for me, that is the fundamental story of poverty in America. Some lives are made small so that others can grow. You know, I think of a young man I met a few years ago, Julio Payez. He was working two jobs in the Bay Area. He'd start a midnight shift at McDonald's going from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Then he'd go home, he'd shower, and he had two hours to get ready before he clocked in at his second job at Aerotech, going anywhere the temp service sent him between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. And then he would go home and sleep as much as he could, and then it was back to McDonald's. He had no life. He was sleeping or working. And one day, his younger brother, Alexander, who was eight, you know, went up to him and said, hey, I'm, I'm saving my money. I want to buy an hour of your time. You know, how much for an hour to play with me. And, you know, when Julio heard that, he just looked at his brother and wept. And after that, he collapsed in the aisle of a grocery store just from sheer exhaustion. You know, he was 24 years old. This is not the capitalism that he deserves, that any of us deserve. And I think that when we see what we're taking from Julio is we're taking health and family 
and life itself. And we're taking that because someone benefits from that taking. Your book really helps show us the difference between uh, the conditions of poverty and the causes of poverty. You're right. Poverty isn't simply the condition of not having enough money. It's a condition of not having enough choice, as you say, and being taken advantage of because of that. When we ignore the role that exploitation plays in trapping people in poverty, we end up designing policy that is weak at best and ineffective at worst. Give us some examples of how we see the exploitation at work. Your book is so good at laying out how the the system that many of us benefit from if we're comfortable or affluent, how that system is one that exploits the poor, doesn't just ignore them, right. but exploits them. So let's look at the financial sector. So every year, banks charge $11 billion in overdraft fees. Check cashing establishments charge $1.6 billion in check cashing fees. Payday loan stores charge about $10 billion in fees. That's $61 million pulled from the pockets of the poor every single day. Uh, you know, when James Baldwin remarked how expensive it is to be poor in America, there's no way he could have even dreamed of these kind of numbers. You know, why is this happening? Are people making bad decisions? No. You know, this is the best bad option for a lot of families struggling in America today. And who benefits from this? You know, who benefits? Sure, banks and payday loan companies benefit from it, but many of us do too, especially those of us with free checking accounts, because it turns out our free accounts aren't free. You know, they're subsidized by $11 billion in overdraft fees, which are charged, you know, to basically 9% of bank customers. You know, who are they? They're the poor, made to pay for their, their poverty. So I, I think that we have to start looking at poverty in America, not just as a, a sadness or something that happens over there, but something that many of us are intimately connected to in our daily lives, wittingly and unwittingly, and start moving toward divesting from poverty uh, bit by bit. I want to wrap this up by going to a, a term that I love that you use here. You're right that ending poverty will certainly require new policies and renewed political movements, but it will also require that each of us in our own way become poverty abolitionists, untangling ourselves from our neighbor's deprivation and refusing to live as unwitting enemies of the poor. What do you mean by poverty abolitionist? And how can we live that way, live that out practically? You know, we used to have ambitions as a country to abolish poverty. I love this little historical anecdote that when President Johnson launched the war on poverty in 1964, they set a deadline. They set a deadline, you know, and I want to rekindle that moral urgency. A poverty abolitionist views poverty as an abomination, not as something we have to live with, not as a inevitability of modern life, but as a sin. And like other abolitionist movements to abolish slavery or mass incarceration, poverty abolitionism holds the conviction that profiting from someone else's pain corrupts all of us. So, you know, that means that poverty abolitionists try to divest from poverty and their consumption choices and their investment decisions. We support deeper investments into fighting poverty, especially those funded by 
tax fairness. We do not ever ask, how can we afford it? Because that's just a dishonest question in a country with so much abundance and in a country where the richest among us pay less than the poorest. And I think a poverty abolitionism movement is a movement against exploitation and a movement against segregation. Now, all of that might sound philosophical, but it's utterly practical. You know, it's a personal and it's a political movement. And so let me just give you five suggestions about what anyone can do to start becoming a poverty abolitionist. First, just start where you are. Start where you are. You know, if you belong to a faith community, ask what your faith community is doing to best from poverty. I teach at a university. I should be asking questions like, hey, what are we paying our landscapers, our adjunct professors? What is my university invested in, you know, with its endowment? Start where you are and use the influence you have. Second, you, we could shop differently. We can vote with our wallets and we can invest differently. And we could look at organizations like B Corps or Union Plus, which curate lists about um, corporations that are really treating their workers with dignity and paying living wages. And I think this builds a political political will that can actually move policy in a major way. Plus, it's just the right thing to do. Third, we could think about our taxes differently. And I think we have to start changing the common sense of how Americans of all stripes talk about taxes. For those of us that benefit from this lopsided welfare state, what if next time tax season rolled around, we started writing our representatives and say, look, I don't need this. I don't need this. Roll this back and direct the money to the families that need it the most. Uh, fourth, if we live in segregated communities, we can contribute to tearing down the wall, doing the hard, tedious work of turning away from segregation because, you know, the segregationists do the hard, tedious work of defending that wall. And so how could we push in that direction? And then last, we could join an anti-poverty movement. And there's so many amazing ones out there. I started a website called endpovertyusa.org just to help folks get connected with anti-poverty movements in their state or those working on a national level. And I'll tell you what, man, if, if you're looking for meaning in your life and joy and purpose, the anti-poverty movement is full of that. You know, it's full of fun. It's full of laughter and warm-heartedness. People are not Pollyannish or naive about the problems they confront, but they are also building beautiful community in confronting those problems. Well, I love that we're ending here with not just uh, thinking differently, but things you can do. I love your five examples of what what, what can happen. Maybe uh, close us out with, you know, I would even call this a benediction. You're right about growing up in a family in which your father was a pastor who sometimes didn't make enough money to make ends meet. How did growing up in that environment, both in a Christian home with a pastor father and in a family where you once lost your home, affect your worldview and your chosen vocation? What's the faith factor here? You know, I think that growing up and experiencing poverty and seeing the way that poverty stressed and diminished, you know, my family often made me angry. And I found that kind of anger in the scriptures too, you know? Like when I read Isaiah 61, for I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrongdoing. That resonates with me. You know, when I see Jesus going into the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers with righteous anger, that resonates with me. And I think that this book is an expression of my hatred to poverty. I hate poverty. 
I hate it. I hate it the way it steals dreams and life and health. I hate how it reduces people born for better things. And I think those of us of faith have a God that also hates poverty. And I think that that is a a motivator for me. And I think that that's something that was cultivated and shaped uh, by my my childhood in Arizona as a preacher's kid. Well, that's a good altar call for the end of our conversation. (laughs) Poverty is robbery. Poverty is robbery and God hates it. And you make that so clear. So read the book. Read the book, Poverty by America. This is a book that can help set us into a new abolitionist movement, which you described so well. So I'm grateful uh, for you and for your book and how your book is deep in understanding, in statistics, in intellect. It's so deep about explaining what we're facing, but it's also deep in the response it calls for. So I'm grateful for your calling us to uh, respond to this sinful situation with a kind of repentance. It doesn't just feel sorry or shameful about things, but repentance means turn around and go in a whole different direction. That's what you're calling for here. So I'm grateful to you, Matthew, for your your witness in all of this. I really am. Thank you, Jim. It's been an honor to speak with you, and I am grateful for your leadership here as well. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the soul of a nation. Thank you all.